Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic's podcast. I'm Olivia Hartley, publisher of The Critic magazine, and today I'm speaking to Dr John Pike, co-convener of the newly established Open University Gender Critical Research Network and a philosopher of sport and ethics. Today we speak about setting up the UK's new network for gender critical academics and the inclusion of trans women in women's sport as the Olympics are due to begin. John, you're the co-convener of the Open University Gender Critical Research Network. It's newly established, it launched last month. It's quite clear that It's not seeking to be some sort of gender critical activist group, but something slightly more nuanced and perhaps wishes to avoid excessive publicity. Can you tell me more about the founding ethos of the network and what its aims are? The network came out of a particular uh, conflict or quarrel at the Open University where I came across Joe Phoenix. Um, This was triggered off by a letter uh, that was sent. Uh, in the names of about 30 academics to the Sunday Times in uh, June 2019. And it was was penned by, written by Kathleen Stock, a philosopher at the University of Sussex. The letter uh, complained and raised concerns about the overly close relationship between Stonewall and uh, UK universities and the effects of that relationship on academic freedom. So I signed the letter, uh, Joe signed the letter, we were the only two signatories from the Open University, and of course we got in touch, we'd not met before then. So we both had these concerns about academic freedom and the impact of the the, the Stonewall uh, diversity programme on that, and it, they were very particular concerns. In my case, I work in the ethics of sport. And of course, there's, a, there's an issue there. Now, I say, of course, there's an issue there, because it seems to me and pretty much everyone else that there obviously is an issue about trans participation in sport. But the approach taken by Stonewall seeks to deny that there really can be any issue because people are who they say they are. So trans women are women because they identify as women, full stop, end of of story, end of ethical conflict. Now, I'm drawing the line there between what Stonewall say and what pretty much everyone else says, because everyone else says, well, at least there's an ethical issue here. At least there's a, there's a, there's a problem. We need to think it through. We need to think about, I don't know, testosterone levels. We need to think about male advantage. We need to think about, is fairness the only value important in sport? And so on. Now, as a philosopher, I think about all those, all those things. I work on all those different things. But to get into the puzzle or the issue or the problem, you have to say initially, there is something going on about the relationship between body and gender identity. There is something that needs to be explored there. 
And the problem with the Stonewall approach or the gender uh, identity approach is you just can't say that. You just can't raise the question of, uh, if you like, discongruence between gender identity and body. So that's why I signed the letter to the Sunday Times. And then I came into contact with, with Joe and things snowballed from there. Stonewall definitely have a sort of no debate policy, which makes it stifles conversation and debate, which is central to academia. And I think it's interesting that you brought up about trans athletes in women's sport, because obviously there's been a massive, well, there's been lots of conversation about the inclusion of Laurel Hubbard, the, the trans woman who's, who's qualified to compete in the Olympics in the female weightlifting category. Based on your own research in this area, because I know that you've looked at the ethics of trans athletes in, in women's rugby, for example, what's your view on the ethics and the safety of including transgender athletes in women's sport? I think this is fairly straightforward and I've more or less come to a settled view on it. Uh, the inclusion of Laurel Hubbard in the Olympics is straightforwardly unfair, full stop. Now, I can say, I can say something more about that, but a possible comeback might be, yes, it's unfair, but there are bigger things at play here. So that's, you know, I'm not saying it, it settles the issue entirely. Uh, yes, it's unfair, but, you know, narratives of identity and liberation are more important than simple fairness. Um, yes, it's unfair, but it's only a little bit unfair, so that doesn't matter very much. Uh, there's all sorts of things that can then be said, but I think it's straightforwardly unfair. Now, the reason is because the setup of the women's category in sport is premised on uh, the existence of male physiological advantage. And it only really makes sense if male physiological advantage is excluded. That then becomes a bit of an empirical issue have trans women who have undergone uh, cross-sex hormone therapy lost male physiological advantage? And the answer is no. All the recent studies, including the Hilton Lundberg study, show that um, this male advantage doesn't, doesn't go, uh, doesn't go just like that. And that's even considering only the factors that can change. Um, and obviously, skeletal structures don't change. We know that, you know, hand size doesn't change. The height advantage doesn't change. Lots of things don't change anyway. So the, uh, the fact that you don't get rid of male advantage uh, when you transition seems to me to make it clear that that it's it's not fair for uh, trans women to compete in women's sport. I think that's fairly straightforward, honestly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I personally am inclined to agree. You have a lot of people, we, you've had some prominent people that have come out and said, you know, this is something that should be considered on a case-by-case -case basis, but is that not almost discriminatory in itself to decide who is considered much, who's considered a woman in some regards and can they compete on that basis? Would it would it just be fairer to have a blanket ban? Yeah, I think 
it, it's slightly tricky this one because saying let's consider on a case-by-case -case basis sounds um, sounds reasonable sounds fair enough um, I think the underlying argument is a poor one though I've called it the range argument which is to say it's a matter uh, when when considering who should be uh, allowed to compete in the women's category it's a matter of two things one is do you identify as a woman and two, are you in the range of women's physiological metrics? But the fact is, pretty much everyone is in the range of uh, female physiological metrics. So, for example, I'm not taller than the tallest woman. I'm not stronger than the strongest woman. So, you know, conceivably, on that sort of basis, I would um, fit within the the, the the female range um, but obviously I have male advantage and um, it's, it's not fair for me to compete um, in women's sport um, so I think the range argument is is fundamentally mistaken and I think the point that you make that it involves um, a sort of discriminatory uh, test applied to trans athletes to see if they are as it were womanly enough uh, to compete is 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 a further feature of the problems in 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 that view. Um, so I don't think that will work. I don't think it's practically uh, workable. I don't think it's an ethically supportable answer. Um, I suppose, if if I may, the philosopher's thought experiment would go like this: If there was a blue pill that you could take that would remove all male advantage permanently um, and uh, someone took that then it would be fair for them to compete in the female category now once you consider that thought experiment you you, you know of you know a few things if, if if people accept that you'll know for example that it's and, and this is not outcome that it's not about uh, genitals or genital uh, uh, appearance, uh, which is a point that some trans activists make. You set up certain epistemic um, problems, certain sorts of knowledge problems, like how do we know if all male advantage has been eliminated? And that's something that's you know a genuine, a genuine kind of philosophical problem. Um, we know that it's not eliminated uh, in the cases that, that we've studied. Um, but if you like, that's the in-principle position that I have. If there was something that could remove all male advantage permanently, then it would be fair for trans women to compete with women. Um, and I, I'm pretty committed to that outcome. We clearly are not in that position. It's clearly unlikely almost inconceivable that we would be in that position because of the sort of skeletal changes and so on that I referred to earlier. Um, but I think that's that's how the logic of my argument pans out. Um, and the way that fits into gender criticality, of course, is just to say I'm talking about sexed bodies and the whole point of the gender critical network is that in certain social circumstances in certain kind of contexts sexed bodies matter not just identity
I think that's an in- interesting point. It's really, it's fascinating to sort of get the philosopher's point of view to explain it so coherently because it has been something there's been a lot of, of kickback on. Um, and it's interesting that this has sort of finally been aligned for people. But sort of going back to the network itself, um, so obviously it's affiliated with Open University, which yeah. makes sense because sort of the whole ethos of Open University is is, is accessibility. Um what was it like becoming affiliated with the university? Did, did you have support from them? Well, first of all, um, just to go back to the previous kind of genesis of the network, um, after Joe and I signed this letter to the Sunday Times, we've got uh, quite a bit of flack, including flack in the union branch um, at the Open University. Now, we're employee employees of the Open University. Um, you know, it's in our contracts to do research. My specialism is ethics of sport. So I have to do, you know, <laughs> I have to. It's my job to do research in the ethics of sport. And lots of this is fairly kind of, I, I find it fascinating. It's stuff about doping and anti-doping. And um, I'm doing some research with the Olympics about kind of devices that stimulate the brain um, and whether these are sort of a, a, a new way of cheating and so on. So this whole area is is my area of research um, and it's to do with bodies. Uh, Joe's area is, uh, Joe's a criminologist, her area of research is prisons. So, uh, and prisons are obviously spaces in which sexed bodies matter. So it's, we, we, we're not kind of, um, a pair of arbitrary kind of particularly bigoted members of staff at the Open University. We have, a, uh, we have an ongoing research interest in areas where sex bodies matter. Uh, because there was the fight in the union, which we won, uh, because it sought to kind of condemn us for signing this letter and that got turned down, um, we kind of gathered a few people emailing us um, and saying, you know, I'm interested in what you're saying, full support, support your academic freedom. And, you know, you try and get a vote together. Um, out of this, we got a network. And it was at that point, a kind of, if you like, political or union network. And we got frustrated with doing this when we really wanted to get on with our research. Now, there were these clever, interesting people at the Open University in across disciplines and across faculties doing work in particular areas coming to an understanding of this new, if you like, way of thinking, this new perspective in kind of social sciences and philosophy and so on, which goes under the name gender critical. And we said, look, we are fed up of, you know, being silenced we want to do proper academic research and talk about it, talk about it with each other, talk about it uh, publicly, set up seminars, interviews, conference, workspaces, exchange drafts, um, comment on e- each other's work, uh, get some grant money, you know, the ordinary sorts of things that academics with a common air interest that cuts across uh, disciplinary boundaries like to do. 
And so that's why we launched the network. In terms of why we're affiliated to the Open University, well, we're at the Open University um, and uh, it's open, open to ideas, open to uh, people, open to approaches. Um, and it has a very good statement of uh, principles of academic freedom. I mean, there are some other features, I think, of the OU that made it a handy place to start. One is that it's big. So there's a collection of, so you get critical mass. So there's quite a few academics who say publicly and privately, I like, I'm interested, I like what you're doing, I'd like to sign up. And of course, because of the world we live in, it's nice to have a bit of support and uh, a few, uh, so, so, some numbers of people. Uh, so I think the size of the Open University makes a difference. Its tradition of openness makes a difference. Maybe some people have said the fact that you don't have students on campus makes a difference, that we work, you know, it's, it's, it's less easy, less prone to disruption and, you know, protest, but who knows? I, I'm not sure that that's, that's a key key element but of course if our seminars are on zoom um, as most people's are nowadays it's difficult to see the argument that we make people physically unsafe on campus going through because well there's no one on there's no one on campus we're not you know existing in a in a in a particular space, we're just, you know, we're just arguing through some stuff like academics do, like researchers do. So that kind of uh, deflates some of the potential criticism. But I, you know, I've got responses to all the criticisms that can be, can be flung at us, I guess. No, I'm sure. And I think, you know, open university almost seems like the perfect, perfect place for these sorts of for this sort of space and it's not hard to imagine if it was a campus university the sort of picketing and and a bit of mm. disruption it, that that can be yeah. intimidating when it comes to academic freedom sure. um, as a lot of academics have come out and said and it's it's just interesting that you know there has been this misconception that you're there to aggravate but you're not you literally mm. just want to do the mundane things like get research grants and, and that's what it is and that's well, I think it's interesting to chat chat about it today to get more of that idea. Can you tell me sort of what your almost like the the network's five year plan is in terms of research and development? Do you do you want to branch out to other universities and do you have plans for growth? Well, uh, yes, I'm not sure we've got a five year plan. I'm not sufficiently Stalinist for for <laughs> for that. Yeah, I mean. We, I don't think we are quite as uh, well organized as maybe that suggests we're, you know, when you start up a network of academics, you say, look, we want a space, we want to talk, we want to exchange drafts, let's set up some seminars, let's have a conference. Uh, so all this sort of stuff is relatively um, straightforward. Now, I don't see the OU network as being the only one uh, in the world or uh, the international center for you know studies in gender critical thinking um, 
there is action going on all over the place. I think there are reasons which I've already mentioned why it starts uh, at the OU. Uh, but I, I think there's a role for a gender, gender critical research network at most, you know, big universities where people want to set these things up, where they, they want a bit of space to, to advance knowledge without kind of needing to justify their existence all the time. I mean, mm -hmm. part of this is that I really want to talk about uh, social contexts in which sexed bodies matter. I don't want to spend all my time talking about academic freedom or the freedom to discuss the things that I want to discuss. I actually want to discuss them. Um, so that's part of part of the uh, point of the network. Um, it's not, I mean, setting it up is kind of a political move, I suppose, in some sense, but it's also just a move that's trying to create some time and space, um, get some you know, get some resources together, get some, you know, we'd look for doctoral students at some point. I mean, it would be great to kind of co-supervise across departments. Uh, you know, there's publishing projects that we have in mind. Um, but I mean, th th at the moment, what we're doing is trying to establish um, our website, our profile, a series of seminars for next academic year, do some interviews some podcasts with uh the very interesting and i think you know substantial uh scholars and thinkers who've who said yes we think this is a good idea we're happy to be associated with with you um and this is these are people who uh who people who follow these things will uh be familiar with so kathleen stock and um Alice Sullivan and uh, Rosa Friedman um, and Joe herself, Selena Todd, people who have been no platform in an academic context have been shoved to one side. So there's a criticism that is made that, oh, all these gender critical people, they're complaining about being intimidated and uh, shut up. But look, they're in the Sunday Times all the time. They're getting lots of press coverage. Now, I think that's that criticism is 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 problematic. But there's an element to which it's true that there is a sort of stultifying atmosphere in academic life and campus life that I just don't like, and uh, that we want to sort of put a put a flag on the in the sand against which is to say look these are perfectly straightforward reasonable academically respectable positions uh, to argue Alice Sullivan when she argues that sex should be recorded in the census it, you know that's a straightforward thing to say and then present arguments um, uh, about that and you know write about that uh, I might be wrong about sport and trans women in sport but it's a fairly straightforward you know kind of position to take I don't need you know I don't need when I publish something about fairness in sport I don't need people to circulate helplines for kind of distressed readers um, uh, who might need you know, counselling and therapy because I published an article about weightlifting. So that's 
that's not where we are. It will be where we are when the gender critical perspective is understood as, well, look, here's just another school of thought. Here's another ism. Here's another box in which, you know, number of theorists, number of scholars, number of researchers, this is a perspective that's entirely straightforward, legitimate, there are arguments for it, are arguments against it, and these are the points of conflict with gender identity theory. That's that's kind of where I'd like to be. Um, I'd say it's quite exciting to be in at the beginning of um, a kind of intellectual school of thought or, you know, a, a, a shared perspective and work that one out. Um, and sure, there'll be kind of theoretical mistakes and kind of blind alleys of research and all the usual sorts of things that you get with an emerging kind of mode of thought. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's quite exciting. Um, and the organizational stuff flows from kind of the, the academic work, the academic research. And we, we, we have started to carve out a space for that. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting how um, it's almost taken so long for something like this to come into place, but I guess there wasn't really the space for it, whereas discussion definitely seems to be opening up, you know, gender critical, people are starting to get more of a voice and it's, it is slowly and surely becoming less heretical almost. Um, so I guess the aim of the network is is almost to be as uncontroversial as possible because you want to sort of normalise these debates in a way that yeah. almost become redundant because you don't necessarily need to have a safe space for these sorts of views. That's obviously, I would think that's the goal for, for the future. Yeah. Un unsurprisingly, I'm not too keen on the sort of safe space idea. Um, I mean, there are key moves in this. Um, so obviously J.K. Rowling's intervention, um, but also the Vorstatter judgment, um, which is precedent setting, says, you know, gender critical beliefs. And again, I'm not so sure that there are beliefs in this sort of strong sense. Um, but gender critical, but that's what the law that's the line the law's taken, so that's that's fine. Uh, gender, gender critical beliefs are protected beliefs. Uh, under the law, you can't be sacked for expressing the view that there are two sexes and sex is in, immutable, uh, which is, which is, let's say, an important victory for enlightenment thought or something like that. Um, uh, so there's a certain protection that's kicked in that I, I, I don't think necessarily kind of gave us conscious encouragement to say now is the time to do it we just got frustrated with not being able to not feeling that it was going to be kind of hassle-free to set up um set up the network um it hasn't been hassle-free um but it's been possible and so far successful but you know there are books coming out and there's just uh, what you would expect from in some senses a new perspective in social science and social theory and thinking thinking about the world and that's you know what academics are supposed to do absolutely the tide the tide definitely seems to be turning especially with the, the with my forsatter's victory um what's interesting i suppose is 
if say there are academics that want to get involved in the network is that something that's really easy to do do they literally just get in touch yes people can just get in touch they can email the network now um and we have various levels of membership depending on whether people are actively engaged in research in this area or you know just interested and uh want to stay in touch with our our meetings and and seminars and conference uh and publications and so on we we are going through all the applications to join uh which come from a wide variety of 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 scholars i'd say you know international scholars some trans and gender uh non-conforming scholars as well who are interested in the perspectives that we can obviously we're completely open to um to everyone who comes along and i would say as well there's something that, that that's quite important that we are interested primarily in uh, sort of positive accounts of of sexed bodies if you like and the importance of sex bodies now the issue of trans identity obviously falls under that but it's not certainly it's not the only focus of of what we do um and it's not a particular uh you know it's not the central focus of what we do um gender criticism is something that i think people if you like on the critical left or progressive left should should take seriously um, and there are various ideas bound up in uh, gender identity theory including philosophical ideas and ideas about metaphysics that i think are, are, are deeply problematic and open to open to criticism so this is this isn't about kind of trans people as such it's about a body of knowledge that i think is problematic and flawed and theoretically under under argued and under un, under supported um but this isn't a political campaign it's 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 a research network with a focus on on sexed bodies it's good news to hear it thriving thriving i think when you spoke of your hope to supervise students in this area i think that would be a great move i know that sort of speaking i'm not representative of all young people but it it is difficult to be open about gender critical views at the moment especially as a, as a young person one of the things that's yeah. been very um gratifying has been open university students contacting us um there's been some talk of an open university student gender critical uh wow society stroke group stroke discussion of course that's you know up to up to the students i mean i've got phd inquiries of course uh which is great and people have asked us to do things that we're not you know in a position to do just yet like review all the courses at the open university for content that we might think of differently and so on um and we're not you know we're not anywhere uh close to that stage um, I mean, what, what's happening is establishing the gender critical perspective as a as a as a respectable, authentic, uh, intellectual, academic perspective on some of these questions. Um, I think you know that's that's almost putting a label on something that's already happening, but putting a label on it allows it to happen. Uh, more openly, more clearly. It's good to see, and it's the sort of space that's that's needed. I won't call it a safe space. <laughs> no. But um, 
as a, as a sort of final, final point to make, I think everything moves very quickly in this debate. You know, you have mm. so many judgments ongoing, and then there was my Forsyth's victory. Mm. A lot of institutions are pulling away from the Stonewall diversity, diversity champions scheme. What? How do you envisage the debate sort of veering in, in the next in the next year or so? Even you know, quite a short period of time. I know a lot of people are quite positive that they they see things turning in their favour, and that hopefully we're sort of coming out of the mist of this sort of period of stifled discussion. I think that's right, and I do have that uh, that sense that things are turning around. Um, it's it's slow, um, and it's often it's sort of two steps forward, one step back. Um, I mean, completely outside of this context, I'm a Labour Party member and a Labour Party activist, and I think the Labour Party has quite a lot of work to do in this area. Um, I hope, though I don't know, I hope that the thinking is going on behind the scenes. Um, but that's, you know, so the, the picture is not um, uniformly straightforward. There's another thing as well that um, I'm quite persuaded by the line that Kathleen Stock takes in Material Girls in the, um, at the end of, of her uh, book. I, I'm persuaded by at the moment by Kathleen's approach that this will become more pragmatic, more empirically uh, informed, more a matter of recognition that rights conflicts need to be resolved in a sort of compromising way, compromising approach. And that approach that um, Kathleen takes is of course controversial. I'm broadly sympathetic to it and I hope I haven't misportrayed it. Well, it remains to be seen if Kathleen's vision is materialises. You know, I hope it does. I think there's definitely space for some rational nuance. But Dr. John Pike, it's been, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for coming on the Critic Podcast to talk to me about the Open University Gender Critical Research Network. Thank you very much, Olivia. It's been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.